This is part two of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash paulwheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash paulwheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. Here in Montana, uh, there, there was a lovely couple. They've both been here several times. We've met with them several times. We had a great relationship with them. And they had uh, a beehive. And they were so happy. And then one day, she went out and she was attacked. She had like dozens of stings and had to be hospitalized. She wasn't allergic to bees, but she just had so many stings that she had to go and um, go to the hospital. And uh, it turns out that they had bought a, a colony, um, you know, through mail order and and had it sent. Uh, but then because of colony collapse disorder, there's gotten to be this dramatic shortage in uh, uh, colonies. And so apparently some places have, uh, uh, I mean, they're just producing as many bees as they can. And so um, <clears throat> uh, they had, it's like if there's five queens, they keep all five queens. They don't go through the, the, the there can be only one thing. Um, and you know about the queen rape and stuff like that. But so um, what they ended up with was a colony that apparently was, and it was a new colony that they had on their property in Montana. And they came to the conclusion that it was the Africanized bees. Or it was a mix, a cross between Africanized bees and others and whatever. There was enough of the Africanized thing that um, uh, she was attacked. They were an extremely aggressive, defensive um, breed of, of bees. And um, so it probably, they, they because of the Africanization, they probably wouldn't have survived a Montana winter. But then, of course, whoever sold them the colony doesn't care because... Um, sell them more next year. Yeah, exactly. What a what a racket. But um they ended up having to um gear up and uh burn the colony just for the safety of themselves and their children. Ooh. Um yeah. Um what a what an awful awful uh thing to have to do. I mean, I I'm not sure. I I probably would have tried something different, I don't know what. Um, and so, therefore, I probably shouldn't say anything at all. But I think, you know, be wary of, of what you buy. So people were talking about um, uh, getting stung. And so I just, I kind of wanted to, to mention that. Um, uh, one time I was at Jacqueline's, uh, I was wearing my full bee suit, which is a custom bee suit because they don't make bee suits in my size. Um, it was, it's like they took a bee suit that was for somebody really fat, which, you know, I confess, I'm really fat. And then, the, and then it had to be modified to be long enough. Um, I did not fit into it as it came. Um, cause I'm a giant, but 
uh, so while I'm all protected next to the, the hive and I'm watching Jacqueline's amazing techniques and caring for these bees, uh, apparently, uh, uh, Jocelyn was about, I don't know, 50 feet away and a bee flew up her nose and stung her <laughs> inside the house. It's like not a place you want to get stung. No. All right. <clears throat> Number five. Number five. You're, you're wanting me to hurry up. <laughs> oh, I'm just trying to, trying to help you along. Oh, good, good. Thank you, sir. Uh, Weak colonies dependent on medications or unable to defend themselves against predators must be allowed to die out, thus improving the gene pool. This kind of reminds me of Daniel Salatin's uh, work with rabbits. And so Daniel Salatin is the uh, son of Joel Salatin, the, the very famous, very amazing Joel Salatin. And... um so I think when he was a kid, like nine, Daniel decided he's going to raise rabbits. But he did not want to do all of the stuff with um, all of the uh, medications for rabbits. So all of the breeding stock that he had was dependent on the medications. And so um, uh, the Salatins intentionally did not share this many years that this uh, young fellow went through to get to the point that he had a breed of rabbits that didn't need uh, all the medications. So they went through many years of 90% die-off. But now this is different from colony collapse disorder. I mean, with colony collapse disorder, you're going to have uh, an empty hive. There's just nobody there. Um, or if your bees die from something, then evidence of that something is there. Um, and so, you know, the thing is, is like, okay, because I know we were talking about like for these techniques, the, the uh, die-off rate or the, you know, from colony collapse disorder is practically zero. Right. And it's like, but we're going to go ahead and um, okay, I'm just noticing that on the chat, they're just kind of going crazy with bee puns. Yeah. I'll be right back there misbehaving. Uh, and then ouch. Um, I'll be okay. Buzz off. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Have fun guys. Have fun. <laughs> all right. Um, uh, all right. So I was looking, I was doing, uh, right, wait, number five. Okay. Yeah, what was the point I was making? What was I saying? I think the point you were trying to make was we we're talking about how, like, there, if you follow these practices, you'll have near zero losses. Right. But I think what you're about to say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that you'll have near zero losses after three years of potentially having quite a few losses. As yeah, no, you I, work I think. I think it's. I think that's part of it. And so, um, I we have a. Um, uh, a colony up here now uh, in in our hive, and um, uh, I was giving a tour, and uh, during the tour, the colony was under attack from yellow jackets, and um, uh, and so somebody you know was like, well, you know, what are you going to do about that? And, and it's like you're looking at it. I'm going to do nothing about it. In the end, either. The honeybees will be able to defend the colony or the yellow jackets will win. 
Either way, that's the outcome that I want. Uh, I mean, so it's like, you know, what I would like to be able to, you know, I I do want to get to the point where I've got like, you know, 20 uh, colonies up on the lab, hopefully managed by 20 different people. Uh, like each one, like one colony, uh, uh, per, per permi. Um, and then, yeah, if, if we're going to lose a lot and, and hopefully a lot, all of those will have started from a, a feral colony, but like the focus needs to be on strong genetics yeah. and, um, not, not genetics that are mass produced. And then you spend all your time having to care for them. Um, so, all right. Number six. Migratory beekeepers chase bloom and move their hives thousands of miles every year. Keep hives in a fixed location year round. So we were talking about that earlier and, and how a lot of people, uh, maybe a lot of people reading our book, Sean, won't believe that there is such a thing as migratory beekeepers or that 90% of the honeybees, uh, I think it's even like 96% of the honeybees in the United States are part of a migratory beekeeper thing. So right. <clears throat> I, I know that in, in my colony collapse sort of video, I was videoing these guys that have like 25,000 hives or they have uh, 9,000 hives and their whole job is to move them around uh, with the bloom. <clears throat> right, right. All right. Uh, any any fun notes from all of the the chat over there? Um, some questions about winter, but maybe we'll cover that in one of these notes again. Okay, let's get through the notes first. Uh, number seven: Conventional beekeepers take nearly all of the honey and feed sugar water to the bees. Bees are made to eat their. Hmm. Bees are. Made so I think we need. I, I think uh, Sean. I think we need to make a note on this one. Uh, instead of bees are made to eat their own nutritious honey, <laughs> so uh, uh, it needs to be bees are made to eat their own nutritious honey, not sugar water. Take less and allow the bees to eat their own honey. There you go. So there, Sean fixed it. Bees are designed to eat their own nutritious honey, not sugar water. Take less and allow the bees to eat their own honey. So it's conventional to feed them sugar water. Um, and on top of that, if you uh, try to feed your bees like honey that you bought from the store, there's a couple of big problems with that. One is most honey that you buy, it says right on it, honey. Uh, and, and it turns out that it's only, generally it's only 10% actual honey the rest of it is high fructose corn syrup um and so it's like what a what a bizarre thing they, they can actually do that where it's like it says honey and it's it's not it's hardly you any imagine buying like apples and it was only actually 10 percent apple <laughs> <laughs> so um uh the next thing is is that um the uh honey that might actually be in that honey is probably loaded with all kinds of diseases because these other bees are infested with diseases which are constantly being fought off with all sorts of medications. And so there's a very good chance that whatever honey you bring into your hive uh, in that fashion is, is going to make all the bees sick. So, so don't, don't do that. You got to leave the bees with their own 
honey, and and then you're just going to harvest less. Which for a lot of people, they're uh, thinking like, um, well, how am I supposed to make money? Well, your conventional beekeeper makes most of their money by uh, moving the hives around to the different bloom cycles, to the different pollination cycles. Um, and then their secondary income is the honey, um, you know, which is a, a big focus. They're like, you know, how could I maximize the amount of honey coming out? So um, I'm I'm kind of thinking that the thing to do is going to be to um, uh, let the bees eat most of their honey, and then the amount of honey that you harvest is just less. And and if you follow these techniques, you might find that you actually get more honey than if you did a conventional technique and kept all of the honey. Right. Okay. Uh, let's see. Number eight. Plant lots of three-season nectar forage so the bees don't have to travel far for food. So uh, we had a beekeeper come by here and said, hey, do you mind if I put, like, 20 hives on the lab? And I'm sure you've all seen this where you'll go someplace and it's like, look over there. You can see, like, 40 hives all in a bunch right there. And and it's like, yeah, the you do that, and the bees can totally do that. They can... They'll go miles to go and, and get nectar to bring back honey and the nectar and the pollen and all the other stuff that they harvest to bring back to the colony. They'll totally do it. But that's harder and more stressful than if there was just one colony in that spot instead of 40. Now they don't have to go nearly as far. And, and so that's less stressful. They'll actually put more honey in that hive. And further, if you go to the trouble to plant a magnificent garden that's packed full of uh, three-season nectar, then um, the distance that they travel is even shorter still. Now, another thing that people talk about is like, okay, I want my honey to be organic. And so I've worked very hard on my property to do everything super organic, but those bees go off property to someplace that's not organic, and so they're bringing back this nectar that is is not organic. And so, okay, step one, do what I did. <laughs> Get enough acres out in the middle of uh, uh, timber company land or forest land or, you know, forest service land, so that way if the bees do go many, many miles, they're not encountering non-organic stuff. Um, uh, but the next thing, which is even more important, is that uh, do one colony in a spot surrounded by three-season nectar by a magnificent garden, and now they don't have to go very far at all to get all the nectar. So they are they, they could still go that four miles away to where there is something less than organic happening, but they probably won't. Um, the in fact. Uh, 90% of their harvest is, you know, if you follow all these techniques, will probably be well under a quarter of a mile um, because there's no reason to go farther. So that's that's a technique to make life better for the bees, more luxuriant. Okay. Number nine. Do we have anything, any new questions, new stuff to talk about? Beehives per acre. I see something about beehives per acre. Yeah, and that's kind of what this next one's about. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, number nine. 
keep hives a few hundred feet apart. In nature, colonies live great distances apart. This reduces the need to compete for nearby food and prevents bees from drifting into other colonies and spreading pests and diseases. So, uh, um, I think our bee hut, our only, our sole bee hut that we have at this time, uh, currently we have, I think, two hives there, but one of them is empty, um, which is cool. Um, and we'll probably leave it that way. Uh, but, um, rather than, you know, trying to get like, oh, let's, it'll hold three hives if we really wanted to push it, but I don't want to travel that road. Um, uh, I would much rather travel a road of like, uh, yeah, so I've been having them several hundred feet apart. So on, on the 200 acres of the lab, then I think it would be good, um, to have maybe one hive. I mean, like, let's, let's suppose that the whole site has 40 people living year round on the site. And so, um, let's say that there are, uh, 15 people that, um, are, uh, uh, stewarding honeybees. So I kind of like the idea that, uh, maybe on average each person might have two colonies that they manage. So we're talking about 30 colonies, uh, that are known in, in known hives, uh, for 200 acres. I think, I think that is an, Excellent ratio. That still leaves plenty of nectar forest for the wild um, pollinators. So, and that's another thing. A lot of a lot of people get very concerned about, like, if you bring in too many honeybees, then you'll displace the the native or feral uh, pollinators. And I kind of I I think that that's a a good point. And yeah. so um, part of it is is like let's make sure that we grow such a jungle that we're providing so much for the honeybees that there's still plenty. There's still basically the same amount as ever for the, the feral pollinators. Okay. Oh, there's something about I heard 200 yards between hives is maximum closeness. <laughs> um I, I think 200 yards, that's a, I, see, I, I'm gonna, again, it, it depends. It's like, if it's just 200 yards of open space, and it's all yeah. kind of a monocrop going, well, yeah. But I think that if, uh, if you've got lots and lots of permaculture jungles and gardens, and the, the land is just thick with growies, um, because all the good permies, I think that um, uh, you could probably drop that down to, I'm going to say, 200 feet. So um, that yeah, would make yeah. for, what, 27 times more uh, hives? So, all right. Oh, uh, Sep said we should harvest in the spring, but I have to reduce to two supers for the fall. Not sure how to work this out. Um, yeah, if you've got a, a super heavy honey load, um, uh, in the fall, it might be wise to take a couple supers out. Um, uh, you know, otherwise it's kind of like the colony is, you know, because the colony is going to concentrate inside of the, the hive. 
uh, into a ball trying to keep themselves warm. Um, so the honey above will, will be okay. But typically, if you, if you shrink it down a little bit, then, um, that's less space to keep warm. And at the same time, um, uh, it's easier for the bees to keep it warm. So, but generally, I think a general rule is harvesting honey in the spring. Yeah. As a, as a general rule. But there could be exceptions. Okay. Um, number 10. Strong, healthy plants grown in a polyculture have richer, higher quality nectar. Feed bees polyculture blossoms. Uh, okay. I've, I mean, we, we've got, don't we, we talk about polyculture quite a, a few times in the book. I don't yeah. know. Do we have a? I don't think we have a chapter dedicated to polyculture, but I know we have at least a section dedicated to, to polyculture. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. So um, I believe that the superfood for all of us, including bees, is going to come from from polyculture. I think I've got an essay from ten years ago up on Permies about how I think that ninety percent of our uh, modern medications can be replaced with polyculture food. Um, all right, number 11, stop using insecticides on crops. Bees are insects. All right, that one's a slam dunk. I think everybody who's listening to this podcast and watching this, whatever it is, this YouTube live thing, um, and all the people in chat right now would probably easily agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Number 12, raising hives off the ground like natural hives reduces moisture problems in the hive. The higher, the better. Now, um, the thing that we do with our bee hut is that the platform is probably a good foot and a half to two feet off the ground. Um, and then Jacqueline Freeman has a gazebo that's got a platform that's a good two and a half to three feet off the ground. Um, and I think she's got at least one colony that's in a, uh, a tree that's a good 10 feet off the ground. Um, but I, I do kind of think that, you know, you start getting a colony that's like, you know, 30 feet off the ground. I mean, that's starting to get a little bit like it's going to be difficult to monitor and work with that, that hive. Now, now most bees, of course, are generally like a good 15 feet or higher up inside of a hollowed out part of a tree. Okay. Uh, number 13, sheltered hives, sometimes called bee huts. Reduce bee stress and help keep the hive warmer in winter. Um, uh, I've, I have heard and I have not yet experienced this, but I have not put as much time into, uh, working with my bees as I would like. Um, but I, I have heard of people that have gotten, uh, five times more honey harvest just from having, uh, a bee hut. You know, um, so, uh, um, I mean, a bee hut faces the southeast, so that way, um, in the wintertime, you get sun pretty much all day, um, and in the summertime, uh, you get the morning sun, uh, but you, uh, through most of the day, uh, the, the hive is shaded, so making things much more comfortable. Well, so, and protected from the rain, right? True, true. So drier, we just talked about the importance of keeping things dry. Yeah. Uh, number 14. 
Uh, colonies that, let's see, I did do, yeah, number 13. So number 14, colonies that live in hollow tree trunks with three to four inch thick walls are stronger because they can better control their own temperature and moisture. Build thick-walled hives instead of scrawny conventional hive boxes. So one of the things that I've done is that we surround the hive with straw. We've got a couple straw bales there, and we pull the straw away a little bit in the summer to allow more uh, cooling. Um, and then we, we tuck them up close in the wintertime. Number 15. Uh, mold is like the kiss of death for bees. If something is moldy, throw it away and replace it. Number 16. Conventional beekeepers open their hives for inspection weekly or bi-weekly. Bees in a proper home do best when they control their own environment with little or zero intervention. So we want to, we want to uh, uh, try to reduce the amount of times we open up the hive. Um, and so, um, it's, I mean, part of it is, is like, okay, I want to check to see if the queen is there. And it's like, um, so they, they do, they start pulling out each of the frames until they can find the queen. Oh, there she is. Okay. Well, let's put it all back. And by pulling frames out and sticking them back in and then pulling the top off and sticking back on, we actually killed about 20 bees. But that's okay. They'll make more. Um, it, it is a point of stress. Not to mention the fact that they kind of, you know, keep the temperature inside the hive a, a very specific, you know, temperature. Uh, and then when you're going and you're you're pulling this uh, hive apart, then you're letting a lot of cold air inside. So it's kind of like um, uh, you're you're disturbing the climate. And then they got to. Reset. They got to recover from your invasion, and so it's like this is this is setting the bees back. This is stressing them, which which makes them susceptible to all sorts of illnesses. Which supposedly is what you're doing is you're checking for a variety of illnesses. Why are you checking for a variety of illnesses? And why why did you ever get the idea that it was a good idea to check for these illnesses? And it's like, well, the answer to that is is somebody is trying to sell you some kind of cure. For a problem. And it's like, okay, so now you bought the cure and it's like, okay, I see that they have this illness. So now I'm going to apply this cure. And so if you're not going crawling in there all the time and checking, then how are you going to know that you need to buy their cure? And on top of that, of course, by checking so much, it, it makes it so that you're more likely to need the cure because you've made them sick by checking them. Well, and then like the way that I look at it is all those points that you said. And then there's also the whole thing where it's like, I'm, I'm kind of lazy, you know, like, <laughs> I can check less often, but that's fine with me. Permaculture is a more symbiotic relationship with nature. So I can be even lazier. So yeah, it, it turns turns out so often the lazy solution is the, is the best solution. The, yes. The checking your hive every week, um, uh, seem, you know, really benefits people who sell shit to supposedly cure bees of whatever ails them. Um, <clears throat> so let's, let's leave them alone and let them do their own thing. The last item, number 17, 
Use organic or better practices in everything that you do because it all comes back to the bees. And it's the same thing for all animals. It all comes back to every animal that you have in your system. I mean, um, uh, we've got a couple of feral cats that hang out here a lot now. And um, and they go away for two or three days at a time. And, and then they come and hang around with us again. And we worry. Uh, in fact, uh, a couple years ago, there was a mama cat who had two kittens here, and all three of them died. And and it's like we never fed them anything. And it's like, so why did they die? And so we're guessing that they probably ate a mouse that ate some poison bait um, at some point in time. Right. And so we're worried about you know, feral cats bringing, being a vector to bring poisons on. But of course, now this is at base camp. So base camp is not 200 acres. It's much smaller. And, and so we do have neighbors and, and cats and dogs come and go from our property from the neighbors. And so they're bringing less than organic stuff here. Um, I think that if you have a cat and you're up on the lab, uh, or if you're up on the lab and you, you know, know of a feral cat. I think, I think that that cat is probably not ever going to bring, um, uh, like it's never going to eat a mouse that has been poisoned. Um, and, and it, for most people who have, uh, mice, they're not, their go-to is the poison bait. Right. And so, um, uh, in which case, you know, when your cats eat that, your cats die. And so this yeah. is, uh, and then other people are like, um, Oh, I, I, I sprayed. I had this insect problem. So I sprayed. And then of course the birds die and the other predators of those insects all die. And so it's like, yeah, use organic or better practices in everything that you do because it all comes back to the animals that you're caring for or that you're attempting to care for. So, oh, Jocelyn's on. Yeah. Being helpful. <laughs> oh, uh, Okay, so there's, so she's made a link to discussion about the flow hives. And it's like, any thoughts on the flow hive? Don't do the flow hive. I mean, just, just think about what all it does. I mean, it's like, oh, I got a flow hive in there and I'm going to activate the flow hive so I get honey pouring out. By the way, it just took a whole bunch of uh, brood and split them in half. <laughs> oh, well, I put a queen excluder in to make sure that it's only honey and I'm not splitting the brood in half anymore. And it's like, I somebody told me something, and I think it was probably Jacqueline, but I think I've heard it from multiple sources, and that is that the queen bee likes to go throughout the entire hive for reasons. And so at some point in time, we might learn what that is. But in a natural environment, there's no such thing as a queen excluder. And so what we do is, is if we want to harvest honey and not accidentally harvest brood, we do a a technique called we look at it. (laughs) 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 This one's got brood. Put it back. Um, This one's all honey. So let's let's uh, let's harvest this honey. So, yeah. But um, the flow hives. That's a lot of plastic. That's, that's, and, and it's like, um, 
I think a, a lot of the stuff I'm trying to do is like, I mean, like right now I'm talking to you through onto the YouTube thing. I have a laptop computer. It has a plastic case. I have not yet figured out how to get away from that plastic. Yep. But, but you know, when doing the thing with honey, there is a way to get away from the plastic. I've got a way figured out. And that's to not use the flow hive and to not use plastic foundation. And there's a lot of other plastic things that are not used in, in my honeybee systems. Um, but yeah, the flow hive has a thing where it's like, look, you just, you know, turn this thing and now honey just starts coming out. And I, and I kind of feel like, um, like that's like, it's just, it's just not okay. It's like, there's so much wrong with that and it's so unnatural and it's, and it's a different kind of invasion. I mean, okay. So like, let's say you did the thing and the honey came out and then, and then, you know what? In fact, I remember this. I remember this when I was like 12, maybe, maybe I was 11. Um, my brother bought a, a case of soda pop cans and, um, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 he and I uh had a lot of uh uh back and forth uh I mean, we did what what boys are supposed to do we beat the shit out of each other on a regular basis and uh and so he wouldn't share with me of course which is perfectly reasonable because he bought them with his money and I bought other things with my money and uh and this was earned money we didn't get an allowance or anything like that so um he bought all this pop and and so um i remember getting several of his pops and poking a hole in the bottom and drinking the pop out of it so that when he went to go get pop it was an empty can with a hole in it <laughs> oh i was evil <clears throat> but basically that's what you're doing with the 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 flow hive thing and and it's like okay so you got the honey to come out and then you kind of like put it back into place and you never opened up the, the, the hive. Um, you just took that one, uh, super and kind of split it in such a way that you cracked open where the honey is stored. And then when you're all done, you put it back. And so it's like, uh, the, the bees come along and they go to get some honey and they open it up and it's like, Hey, somebody, somebody, you know, split the side of this cell and took the honey out. There's no honey in here. So you, you left all the stuff in there for holding the honey for, for, uh, the, the cap is still on the honey, but there's not honey in it. I'm not, I'm not even sure what would happen there. Does anybody know anybody in, in the typey typey world here of the chat thing? Do you, do you, like, as people, have people start to report like, uh, when when they do this so that the bees fill it up fill a cell up with honey and then they cap it and then you go and you take the honey out but you leave it there with the cap on it do the are the bees like i don't i don't need to open that that's got it's full of honey it's already capped in which case eventually do they figure that the whole hive is full of honey and there's no more storage left and then winter comes along and they're like suddenly discovering that they don't have near as much honey as they thought I mean, what is, what, what's going on in there? I wonder, I wonder if people with flow hives are having some, some serious problems with their bees. Mm. Okay. 
leaving behind the, the flow hive thing for which I don't like. Um, and, and I think I've probably got about three more hours to say on how I don't like flow hives, but skippity skip, skip, skip. Uh, we got two paragraphs left in this whole chapter. Like yeah. I said, very short chapter. By following these techniques, there could be 10% losses for the first three years as genetics get sorted out, and then there will be near zero colony loss. Four other chapters about animal care, chickens, cattle, hogs, and aquaculture, were eliminated in favor of keeping this one, because this chapter paints a really good picture of the general permaculture approach to working with nature instead of against nature. This chapter is meant to be an example of animal care far better than what is commonly practiced in producing a large part of our food. This book is not about animal care, but about building a better world. And this part is about helping people understand a flavor of animal care that not only makes for healthier, happier animals, but a healthier, happier everything. Nurture nature, and nature nurtures us all. The end. That's our chapter for today. All right. What have we got for questions or comments or rude gestures? Not too many rude gestures. Okay. Do we have a que- do we have any questions? There's stuff. Somebody says no wax production. So I think they're probably talking about the flow hives. Yeah. 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 Cause it's all just plastic. Um, uh, so, yeah. Somebody asked, uh, if we tried a heat gun to decapping frames. Did you say a heat gun? A heat heat knife? No. I have not tried to, to use a heat gun for decapping. They say the fastest way ever. Huh. Well, might be something worth looking into. I've never, I've never tried it. Um, let's see. You know, and so I, <clears throat> I see something about uh, a mink, and I and I just want to say that um, uh, I remember that thing years ago about how fur is murder, and and I kind of feel like, well, why did they say that about fur, and they didn't say that about like meat, right? You yeah. know. And, and it's like, I, and I kind of feel like, okay, there's probably horrible ways. And I think part of it was, is like, oh, the way that they're raising those animals is really awful. And it's kind of like, okay, can we raise those animals in a really good and healthy way? And now it seems like what most people wear, like if you go into the big city, yeah. and then what, what most people seem to wear as a coat is a leather coat. Or a petroleum coat. And so I, I kind of think to myself, like, well, you know, wait a minute. Um, so people are, do people prefer petroleum based clothing over, uh, I mean, for, so first of all, there's the leather coat. And it's like, okay, fur is bad, but leather is okay. <laughs> And it does seem like there's going to be a lot of uh, leather available because of how much uh, beef people eat. And so, okay, all right. 
uh, uh, but, but still, um, I kind of think that, you know, I, I would kind of like to, I, I, I feel like, cause I've never ever owned a fur coat or, or even a coat that, that had real animal fur on it. I, 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 I kind of wonder, uh, you know, whether I would like that or not, whether, you know, but I would, I, I kind of wonder if it would be part of, um, uh, a good, uh, a good approach. Like, would it, is it something that would be better than the, um, uh, uh, petroleum based solutions? And so I think, I think most coats that are warm are full of petroleum fluff. I mean, there's going to be stuff that's going to be wool. But those are very rare. It's, it's difficult to find a, a wool coat. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, is, I think, is my analysis correct? Is, is that, I mean, like, is pretty much universally anything that's a, an insulated coat is, it's a petroleum based thing? I think, aren't there also, like, sound jackets? It's true. There you go. There's a there's a good one, and and then of course is that not uh, uh, murder, you know, in the same respect as fur is murder. I I don't know. We've got such a negative thing about fur now. I I kind of wonder if it's worth reevaluating. I I think it is. I think it is worth reevaluating. I I feel like um uh, it's it's time to bring back the fur coat. Well, and evaluate how are we getting those animals raising those animals, right? Yeah. There, I think that a lot of the first stuff was like people just going into the natural ecosystems and like doing the animal version of clear cutting and just being like, okay, now we got all the furs. And right. yes, that is a problem. Right. But right. Right. We can do to mitigate problems. Okay. So, um, uh, what do we got for uh, uh, questions? I, I mean, there's so much stuff here. I, I can't, I can't possibly read this all. This is like I'm scrolling through it, and it's like, wow, that's a lot of stuff. Well, uh, so it's probably B puns. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Any tips for a new city boy con- considering keeping bees for honey? Uh, don't tell all the neighbors. <laughs> well, um. I, I kind of feel like in our book, Build a Better World in Your Backyard, um, we do focus on, uh, we do have a whole section of the book that's just about things that are in your home. Another section that's just about having an urban backyard. And, and then we start moving into the space of like homesteading. And I was once asked to give a presentation and I wrote a presentation. This is like six years ago. And, um, I think I presented during the big tour about like what's more environmentally friendly. And I think they specifically asked for a carbon footprint, which has a better carbon footprint, um, living in the city or living in the country. And, and so I spent two hours exploring this. And, um, I mean, basically there's ways to do it in each. But since then, and especially as we're writing this book to s- such detail, um, I think it's entirely possible to do poorly in both. So, for example, you can live in the country, not plant any trees, and 
uh, commute to your job in the city five days a week. And so that's going to have a, a pretty nasty footprint. Um, but, of course, the things I advocate are going to be building community, um, growing a big garden, and, you know, having enough acres that you can plant uh, a jungle of a forest. And so, um, uh, I mean, I think at one point in the book we talk about a pocket full of seeds and a half a day can offset your carbon footprint. Yeah. Um, and then if, if you do that, you know, 12 times a year, you're now offsetting the carbon footprint of a dozen people. Um, so uh, very difficult to do in the city to, to be able to do that. Um, um, but if you're living in the country uh, and you've created a life that's so magnificent that, and you've got like a, a vehicle you can drive to town in, but you just don't, because where you are, things are so good. Um, then I, I think it's it's uh, the answer is quite simple. That that country living, you have the potential to do far better with country living than with yeah, city living. Absolutely. So um, the the people living in the city, of course, have the option to be able to not own a car and to walk wherever they go. Um, and, and so then, you know, eliminate that. There's, there's a variety, but you still got to bring that food to those people and the carbon footprint and the petroleum footprint and all the footprints that go with that food is, is very significant. So, um, having your own garden to feed yourself, even if you can feed only half of your food needs, um, has far greater impact than almost anything else. All right. Okay. What else we got in this big long list of chatty bits? I think we've just about covered it. Really? That's a, there's a lot of chatty bits there. There's most <laughs> of them talking about cats and minks, I think. <laughs> and then there was the thing about the pirates. Um, are pirates? Yeah. It's no, not I've, even. I've, I've been reading it all. September nineteenth, I think, is Talk Like a Pirate Day. Um. Or maybe whoever asked me to talk like a pirate, maybe they're a pastafarian, where the the pirate stuff is a is a big part of being a pastafarian. You're you are familiar with his noodliness, right? Yeah, I think so. You think so? The flying spaghetti monster? It rings a bell. Oh, okay. All right. All right. I guess so. The the, the you know. There's this silly thing about somebody, some child was asked to write a report about a religion and he made up the flying spaghetti monster and he got an F. So now it's turned into this enormous thing. Uh, and, and it's evolved. Uh, and so they, uh, I think that, the, I think the Pastafarians tried to speak like a pirate or their traditional, uh, garb is pirate garb. Um, something like that. Okay. It's I I don't understand all the details, but I I do know that like talk like a pirate day is somehow tied into being a pastafarian from the flying spaghetti monster. Okay, good to know. Yeah. Um. Uh. You know. You you can write that down if you feel like you. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> okay. For this chapter, uh, um, it's available now on the Secret Inner Circle forum and um 
uh, what one of the things that we need is we need to get all of the little uh, links for the footnotes. So there's probably going to be 20 little links in our chapter that go to different threads at permies.com. Um, and then um, I think that uh, we're going to do this again because we got this working. Yeah. I think it's working pretty good. So I, I think that uh, we're going to be doing this again. We'll announce it to all of the Patreon peeps uh, to know to let them know what is going to be the date and time when we're going to record the next one. And we're doing that one. I'm, I'm thinking we're doing it with Jacob Lund Fisker, author of Early Retirement Extreme. And what's the name of that chapter we're going to be uh, um, covering? Radically Deviant Financial Strategies. And, and I believe that that chapter is like eight pages long. So, yeah, you know, we might need to budget a couple hours for that. Yeah, it's going to be like two and a half times, three times bigger than what we just did. Um, and, uh, it's, I think, I think that we've got, there's a lot of stuff in that that I have not yet shared in podcasts. And we'll have Jacob on the podcast with us because we are going to talk about early retirement extreme and Jacob's going to review the stuff that I've written that is not in his book. And so, um, and of course, we're going to strongly advocate that people get Jacob's book, Early Retirement Extreme. It is an excellent book. So, uh, I think we're all done here. Yes. Yes, we are done. Thanks. And, um, yeah, give us some feedback and there'll be a thread on Hermes too for the audio or for the podcast version of this video. <laughs> so that's another place you can come and give us feedback if you're not in the secret inner circle. Oh, right. Right. If you get on the Patreon stuff, we'll, we'll tell you the, uh, the date and time of when we're going to be doing this with Jacob Lundfisker. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, uh, Finn Bear says, you guys better talk about Bitcoin. Uh, it's not in the chapter. Bitcoin. Yeah. Cryptocurrency and Bitcoin is not in the chapter. Um, uh, Bitcoin. I, 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 I kind of watched the price of Bitcoin a little bit. Um, I've, uh, um, I got paid, uh, for some stuff with Bitcoin, um, uh, several years ago. And so then I, I have, I have Bitcoin and then I watched it go up to like almost $20,000 per Bitcoin. And now I think it's like down to like $4,000, maybe 3000 something. It's like, wow, it's, it's really dropped a lot. But, um, uh, I, I am looking for, and I do know that also there is a mountain of misinformation about Bitcoin, just dumb stuff. Clearly there are people out there that do not want people to get in on Bitcoin. Um, but I, I think that, uh, there's, there's going to be a lot of future in Bitcoin. Um, I'm not sure how exactly it's going to work and I'm kind of curious about some of the details, but it's, it's definitely a coming thing and I am, I am looking forward to it. I'm excited about it. Um, but no, I'm, I don't feel like I'm a Bitcoin expert. I think I know enough about Bitcoin to be able to tell people like, you know, what are you? No, that, 
that article is for dumb fucks who don't know anything about Bitcoin, and it's it's wrong. It's misinformation. It's it's fear and un- uncertainty. I mean, if you think about it, the big banks they are not going to like Bitcoin. <laughs> um, I I uh, uh, there's there's a lot of people that think that Bitcoin is for suckers, um, and it's like okay. Um, that's fine. Then, then don't get any. At the same time, apparently there's some countries that have been going through some financial crises and they've been using it. But I think Bitcoin isn't necessarily about in your backyard. Um, maybe, maybe it's a, a thing you can do. Maybe, well, maybe it's, the whole idea is that it's, it's massively distributed thing. Right? True. True. And it, it, uh, it, it really can't be unmassively distributed. And so, um, like, like you can't like blow up a place and then, and then it's gone. It's like, no, it's, it's very resilient. Um, and, and then of course the people who behave poorly around dollars or other monies, um, they're, they're, they're going to be very upset at people using Bitcoin, which makes it kind of funny. Now, if if we're going to shoot the stink eye at big banks, I gotta say, I love Kickstarter. Um, it's like uh, uh, I I remember um, uh, when I was in my early twenties, I wanted to start a business and I didn't have enough money, and so I cut my hair and I <laughs> I, I went. I went to, to a bank and in the end, and then of course they make you wait to talk to, uh, you know, some person who they put on a high pedestal, uh, you know, and you, you effectively you're groveling to the bank for a loan and, and the, the, and they're going to make money off of your loan. And in the end, they wouldn't give me the loan unless I had somebody who had epic coin, uh, Cosign, and so that other person took all the risk, um, and then of course the bank made a lot of money off of me, um, whereas the the cosigner took all the risk and didn't make any money, and it's, and it's like, what a so with Kickstarter, oh man, I just so so enjoy it, and so of course we're gonna do a Kickstarter. I just I just kind of feel like every time you do a Kickstarter. You kick a banker in the nuts. <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about honeybees, homesteading, and permaculture all the time. Bye. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.